Alexa, what is the best podcast in the land? Here's pulling back the curtain podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. What's happening, people, and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppress. We give sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. Alexa, what is the baddest podcast in the land? Here's Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast registered from Amazon Music. Playing the latest episode. This podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. Sumato Coffee believes that coffee should be unique and high quality from bean to cup, and that coffee is best two to 14 days after it's been roasted. Beyond that, it starts to become stale. At Sumato Coffee, they're incredibly concerned and transparent about when your coffee is roasted. That's why they put the roast date right on the bag. Pulling Back the Curtain podcast listeners receive a 20% discount off their order by using promo code BALLERSCOFFEE. To learn more about Sumato Coffee, please visit them at sumatocoffee.com. That's S-U-M-A-T-O-C-O-F-F-E-E.com. People, what's happening and what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest baddest podcast in the land. We're hitting you with the dopest stoppers. Come with the rawest opinion while giving the straight up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. I'm Chris. We give a sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. On this episode, we pull back the curtain on the Harlem Renaissance period and much, much more. Prez, what's popping, baby? Man, Jules, it's your world, man. How you doing there, fam? Oh, man, I'm still winning, man. I'm, I'm tired of waking up and seeing snow. And so I know what I'm be doing after the show, but I mean, I'm still winning. <laughs> so you're going to be doing that after the show? Then you're going to be doing it in two more hours? I mean, dude, we have not gotten this much snow in a very long time, bro. We was feeling good in January. Then February was like, yeah, I get y'all suckers. <laughs> <laughs> February was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> man. But other than that, man, everything good, man. You, How about you, man? Hey, how's, how's everything going with your garage? So that thing is still hanging up by a thread, man. We got a contractor selected, so they're going to come out on Monday and demolish it. But, dude, the process to get permits in the the city that I live in, bro, is so Uh fucking weird, man. It took us, like, three days just to get the permit. So that kind of delayed this whole situation. But the city's the one that's calling us, threatening us with violations, and it takes us three days to get a permit to tear it down. I I just don't get how this stuff works. (laughs) Well, well, you know how to work now. Man, you know, as Prez said on the last episode, he don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, 
a couple of beaks that get wet. You know that, right? <laughs> Man, they they got to, to wet their own beaks. <laughs> 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 no, I get you, man. Right. What's but you that? know another thing, man? Uh, one of the neighbors, I don't know who it is. I'm going to find out, though. Somebody called the cops. <laughs> they was like, yeah, the garage, this the garage is falling down. And so the cop comes <laughs> by, and he was like, man, he's like, what you supposed to do? He's like, you got the permits. He's like, so I don't even know why they called. But he said, I'm sorry you got to deal with this. I'm like, man, I don't know, man, but we got a narc out here. And he laughed. So he, he was, <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'll be the same way. I'll just like, what? You don't want it like this either. So what? Right. Be real fun. I think I think somebody, whoever that was, was just bored and just want something to complain or talk about. And they hate it, man. They they hate it. They don't see see them cars that been in that garage. That's all that is. I see you. I feel Uh y'all. When you drive in German, they don't like it, man. They don't like it. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) German. (laughs) So we're going bigger, right? Yeah, we're definitely going big. The, right. the, the plan is on. We okay. we, we, we upgraded, and I'm definitely going to uh, hook it up with some tech and some. And we're going to get some IT stuff going on up in there so we can do the pod. The plans are going forward. Oh, snap. Okay, and you said you wanted, correct me if I'm wrong, you wanted some Ryan White. Wine, okay. yes, white. sir. White. White or red? White, okay. I do the white in the in the summer, and I do the red in the winter. You know what I'm saying? So, okay. Yeah. All right, so, so I got you. My man. But I can't wait till we do that episode. Speaking of which, man, one of the mailbag questions this week, you don't like this one. It came over from uh, one of our listeners, uh, Demetrius Giddens. He said, can I uh, come hang out with y'all when y'all record the first episode in the garage? Demetrius, I'm going to say this. Yes, you can hang out with us, but on our YouTube live channel that we're going to kick off this summer. So then if you want to have a drink with us there, fam, you and any of our other listeners are more than welcome. But yeah, you're not coming That's to the garage, saying. bro. You ain't coming to the garage. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Demetrius, man. Hey, I got no saying on who I can bring to this man's garage. So, hey, if the man said, hey, uh, on something else, then cool, man. But hey, appreciate you want to hang out with us, though. Yeah, maybe in the future, man, when the world goes back to normal, we could do a live show sometime. And hey, maybe you could pull up with us there. You know right, what I mean? right, right. Now we got to keep it safe, so. This is for your safety, Demetrius, but we love you, man. Thanks for listening to the show. And uh, we definitely want to get that YouTube channel up by the summer. And we'll we'll definitely keep you guys posted on on that as well. Jules, we had another question that came over from Alyssa. So she wanted to know from both of us, what's been our favorite episode of the podcast? So I'm going to start with you. Man, that's the easy one. It's Black Wall Street. Okay. I'm not going to lie to you, Prez, man. We cover a lot of things and talk about a lot of of situations, man. And... A lot of it's good, but that Black Wall Street really hit home here. Yeah, I could even tell in that episode for you because there was a couple moments where I felt like you you really got choked up on that. Yeah. Like this, yeah, I remember that. Man, with all the things they started and built to have it taken away, ripped snatched away, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. and then rebuild. That wow, that goes to show you the resilience of people, man. When they come together, man, that's a great one. I would say this, man. When I look at season one of the podcast, we were still just learning how to podcast. So we're a way different mm-hmm. podcast today. So for me, when I when I think of that question that Alyssa asked, I think from season one, if you ask me what my favorite episode was, I would say probably episode 16, Inspired Change. And that was the episode where I started to realize, and I think this is something that we started talking about, you know, amongst ourselves is that, hey, there's might be a, a deeper responsibility with this podcast than talking about, you know, movies and, you know, and bullshit, right? So it was on uh-huh. this episode where we talked about the racial divide within the NFL. We started having conversations about Colin Kaepernick and his role with social justice. And 
this episode to me was kind of the precursor of some of those events that started to kick off over the summer. For our audience, right. if you guys haven't listened to that, check out episode 16 from season one. And again, you guys know season two, we've been coming at this thing from a different vibe, better sound quality. So don't judge us for the sound quality of season one, but listen to the content that was put out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I also agree with Jules in the sense that season two has just been a different bird because this season, man, has just been so Every episode, every week when I turn this microphone on, man, I get excited, man, when when Jules and I record. And we've done Mm -hmm. so many good shows, it's hard to even say which one is probably my favorite. I would probably have to say episode 34. That was the episode when we had Jeffrey Carter on and he talked about the ownership piece for people. I love that Mm -hmm. one, man, because this was a Chicago cat that basically was just dropping Jules to help people, you know, to understand what they can do to position themselves to own. And if you already are an owner, then ways that you can position yourself to invest in your community and buy back the block, which is something that I think a lot of people should be looking at right now, especially people of color. Buying the communities that they say that these are communities, but we don't have any ownership in them. So that was a powerful episode for me, Jules. We just getting started, man. Just getting started. Yes, sir. We just heating up, bro. We just preheat right now. That oven is preheat. (laughs) That was an excellent question. Thank you for that question. Excellent. The last one we had, and I mean, so the thing about it is we had about eight of them, and we didn't want to spend a whole (laughs) hour like going through all the mailbag questions. So what we'll do is next week, we'll do the the rest of the ones we had. But we had a last one that we're going to cover, at least on this show, from Maria. And she wanted to know what Netflix show or documentary are we currently watching? So I'm going to throw that over to Jules. Right now, I'm not even watching. The last thing I watched on Netflix was, I want to say the Karate Kid. The, oh, the Cobra the Kai? Yeah, the Cobra Kai. How was That's that? The, it, the first two was better. I think the third one was a little more, it was a little different, but it was okay. Like me, it was always good to see the old cast, well, as Perez, we grew up on watching Daniel and his character, him and Tommy and them characters when they was oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. teenager. Damn, so. <laughs> right. To watch them now grown and have kids of their own and they're kind of following behind their footsteps and uh, karate and then they put a little different little spin to it. So I thought it's entertaining, but I like the first two seasons better. Is it a show that I should invest time in? Because I haven't watched any of it. So should I like Oh, maybe? yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely watch the first, second one and third. Yeah, definitely watch them. And you'll see the third one was a little more, a little more talking, a little more dialogue in this one. It's the, like me, man, I like blood and guts and shooting and stuff like that. I want to fight. <laughs> I, mean, I just want to see people fight and get down, man. So they had a lot of, a lot more dialogue in this one, no but you, you animal. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, but I thought it was cool, though. Okay. I'm going to add that one to my list, man. I'm going to, you know how you go on Netflix and, and add it. I'm going I'm to add that one. When I watch the season one of it, I'm going to, I'm gonna let you guys know if uh, if Jules was spot on or not. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, because it's only ten. Ep- it's only ten episodes. Let's what they like thirty minutes? Thirty minutes, right? Yep. Oh shit! I can blow through that. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. All right. Well, good looking out, man. For me, I had a couple, man. So Maria, bear with me here. I'm gonna give you a Netflix show, and I'm gonna give you a TV series that I'm watching. The first one I'm gonna start with, Jules, is on Showtime. I don't know if you peeped this one. It's a it's a series called Your Honor. It's like one of those series where it's only like one season type of deal. This shit is fucking fire, bro. It's, it takes place in New Orleans and Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad is in it. And he plays like a, a judge. And I don't like I give the whole story of what the series has been about. But basically, 
Brian Cranston's son in this series was involved in a hit and run accident. And basically this hit and run accident basically sets the stage for everything that takes place in this damn series. And I'm telling you, it's a lot of stuff that happens and you just sit there, you just shake your head about all the different schemes and the different plots that happen behind the scenes. But it's a really good show. And the series finale is uh, Sunday, uh, February 14th. So that's my uh, Showtime show, Your Honor. I don't know if you peeped that one, uh, Jules, but it's pretty good. Okay, Your Honor. Okay. So yeah, take a look at that one if you ever get a chance, man. But it is really entertaining. And um, the Netflix show is the one 13th that we talked about on one of our previous curtain calls, the Ava, uh, she did that one. And Mm, so on this one, it just tells the story of a post-slavery America. Pulls back the curtain on the Thirteenth Amendment. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Thirteenth Amendment. Okay, yeah. And so, for our audience, in case you guys may not know, that's the the, the amendment that appeared to abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. And but in this documentary that Ava did, though, she basically showed you guys that there was a loophole where it permitted slavery as a punishment for crimes. And so she just kind of talks about all of the different things through research and evidence that the criminal justice system and mass incarceration, which are things that Jules and I talked about on the show, how they go about perpetuating racial inequality. So that's the Netflix thing that I most recently watched. It came out in 2016, but I wanted to take a look at it again, just because Jules and I have been doing a lot of these episodes and I wanted to just kind of just, you know, make sure I was kind of honing in on some of these things that have been out there. So 13th by Ava DuVernay. That's the the Netflix show. It was it like a docu series or is a? Yeah, it's just like a little, a little short, little docu series. Yeah, I might check that out tonight then. Yeah, there you go. You know, knock it out, man. It ain't gonna be doing nothing but snowing around here all damn day. Oh so. man, dude, might as well shovel more shoveling. <laughs> man, is this life, Jules? <laughs> when you were growing up on the South Side, did you just say, you know what? As a little boy, when you were shoveling snow, you like. Man, you know, 30 years from now, I'm going to grow up mm. to just continue to be have to shovel snow. <laughs> I told you, man, I'm, I'm tapped out, dude. I'm getting that snowblower. I'm getting it. I am getting it. So you I going can't. snowblower, not snowblower. Uh, I got you. No, I'm going snowblower. I, I can't wait till I take my ass up in that store. Say, <laughs> Give me the biggest, baddest uh, snowblower you got. <laughs> That's how I'm going to say it, too. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were like, sir, it's only, it's only July. Damn it, give me that goddamn snowboard right there. <laughs> you just throw your card up. It's like, yeah. I'll be by the door. Right. Man, I don't want it. That's it, man. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you, bro. I wish that I would have pulled the trigger on it when I could have. Because like you said, the pricing on these things, you know, off season is so advantageous for you to do it. And I'm like... All I was thinking of is, well, last winter, it didn't really snow that much. And I was like, oh, I could just shovel it if it happens once or twice. Man, if I could, if I right. had one message, if I had one message from summer prayers, I'd be like, man, shut your ass up and buy that damn snow tour. <laughs> summer prayers. <laughs> yeah, folks. Yeah, folks. Yeah, sorry. Sorry to get, get sidetracked. But man, all that shut that snow, man, just hit me, man. I just get mad all over again, man. Now you see how I feel, Jules, when we was on the episode last week, and I was happy. Then I looked out the window, and I looked in my garage, and I got fucking pissed off. <laughs> it's goddamn snow. 
Shit. Look, so the 13th, I'm, I'm going to check it out tonight. I'm going to let you know what I think about it. Cool, man. And I'm going to do the same thing with the Cobra Kai. I'm going I'm to definitely fire that up tonight as well, man. But, man, let's get into uh, some of our pre-show uh, before we get into the actual nuts and bolts of the episode of talking about the Harlem Renaissance. Wanted to get your thoughts, Jules, on our brother Eugene Goodman, man. Uh, I yes, saw sir. that he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal uh, yesterday for his actions that took place on January 6th, man. What do you think about that, brother, bro? Man, congratulations. You talking about ballsy? Shit, right? Man. See, we he had us all fooled because we thought he was being chased by those rioters. Fooled everybody. He was leading them away from Congress people that was up in that office. Big shout out, big kudos. Definitely deserved it. Because what he did right there, he risked his life in mm-hmm. saving, you know, the people who write the laws and stuff for us. I mean, what else can you do for this brother? I think he got a he got a promotion too. He did get a promotion. He yep. got a promotion, get the medal. He deserved yeah. it because people died there. <laughs> I was about to go there, Prince, but man, hey, congratulations, brother. Thank you for what you did, man. Thank you. Yeah, that's a hero. And and I know, Jules, you always, yeah. you know, mentioned, man, there's there's some good ones out there. And I wanted to make sure that we gave a salute to him because that's somebody right there that I feel like is a hero. You got to think about the actions that he had in that situation, though, the awareness, because you're right. Those people were chasing him, but mm-hmm. it was almost in a sense that it was like the shit from one of those cartoons where it's just like you're diverting the idiots that are chasing behind you. So remember how Tom right. and Jerry used to always fucking be at each other? Right. That's what right. that shit looked like. Well, he was kind of like, oh, OK, yeah, well, now you get you guys all your attention. The anger is on me. And so I'm just going to lead you mm-hmm. and send your ass off. And that's what he did. <laughs> that's what he did. Because when you look at the video, you see him push one guy. Yeah, he did. Kind of get him to keep focus on him. Yep. Yep. Because he saw where he was going. He was like, nope. <laughs> right, right. Dude, you know how you have to be to face that and to say, you know what? What I'm going to do is something bigger than, 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 my, than my own life. I know he was sitting up there thinking, you know what? My life is in jeopardy here. But Hell he said, yeah. he's looking at the bigger picture. He, look, he looked at himself, look, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself and I'm going to just do this and just pray to God that, you know what I'm saying, nothing goes too far south. Because sometimes you get in them situations where there's stuff going on, but to protect life and, and the preservation of life is first. It's in creed, it's in document on law enforcement or, or anybody, just in, in people in general. You don't want to see people getting hurt and stuff. And sometimes people in, intervene. And what he did was amazing. It really was. And there's no type of training, like you were saying, Mm-mm. that can prepare you for a situation like that, man. Let's be honest. It's, it's scary. People, just put yourself in that man's shoes. These people coming up in there angry. They're a mob. Talking about hanging and killing and stuff. I told you, Prez, for me, I'll be shooting. But, 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 I ain't even gonna lie to you. I ain't gonna lie to you. I ain't messing with you. I'm not, I'm not playing. Jill said it'd be him. It wasn't gonna be me. It ain't gonna be. Hey, I'm going. My thing. I'm going home. Uh-huh. I'm going home that night. I don't know about the rest of you. What he did, man. I take my hat off. I bow to him, man. I don't even know what to say with that, man. Good, man. Congratulations. Also, too. He saved uh, your boy Mitt Romney because, you know, a lot of those guys hated Mitt Romney. He was somebody that a lot of these Trump supporters really, really had a lot of beef towards. So I know you saw in the video when those guys were kind of running up on on Eugene, he Uh saw Mitt Romney coming up and he tapped him on the shoulder three times and let him know, like, hey, you need to go this other direction. And then you saw Mm -hmm. how the Secret Service, they got Mitt Romney up out of there. So when Mitt Romney saw the video of that, he wasn't even aware that his life was in danger. 
or how close his life was right. to being in danger. And he said that that made him emotional. He probably still kissing on that man, kissing and hugging on that man. Thank you. Man, I saw my brother Eugene. He had the little Gucci scarf. I was like, man, did, did you buy him that Gucci scarf? That mm. thing was nice. <laughs> hey, was, dude, hey, 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 Eugene was dapper, man. Boy, he was killing him, wasn't he? <laughs> hey. And he wasn't no little, he wasn't no little dude. The boy, he was he got signs to him. Hey, yeah. he, hey, he was stocky now. He wasn't yeah. he wasn't gonna play with you. Mm-mm. But dude, he outsmarted those guys. And I think that's one of the things that you and I always talk about, Jules, is being strategic in, in a situation. And he was very strategic. <laughs> you know, he played those guys. He was playing uh, chess over there with them with them fools. He sure was. <laughs> he had us all, like I said, he had us all fooled because I was like, oh, man, they was chasing this brother. And then, yeah, you go back and look at it, man. You see him tapping him, telling him, hey, no, come here. He'll yeah. run, then turn around, talk to him and stuff like that until they get to where there's more Capitol Police and stuff. Yep. Dude, he, he was phenomenal in that situation. But I'll, I'll tell you this, man. My biggest thing that I took away from just watching that, just before we even knew the backstory, police officer or no police officer, me watching a black man being chased by a mob of people carrying Confederate flags and shit like that, that's something, mm. man, when I saw that, oh, wow. I was like, bruh, you know what I mean? That right there, that showed you the type of America we still live in today. And that's the type of America that Jules and I talk about on this damn show. Mm. because. When you see that type of stuff happening in 2021 and people want to turn a blind eye to this stuff, do you just think about the actions that he took in that situation? And he saved lives. And it didn't matter about the who the lives he saved. He saved all lives that day. Right. Race, creed, color. Hey, hey, all of it. He was saying like preservation of life is what he was indoctrinated with. And that's what he did. What you said about being chased for angry mob, white people uh, just coming out with Confederate flags and nooses and stuff. Wow, it bring you back. You just see the image. The images pop in my head of our ancestors back in the day, what, what they was going through. Mm-hmm. It was a tough thing, but the thing about it is mm-hmm. he's a hero. And there was a lot that came out of that Capitol insurrection, Jules, that a lot of people don't talk about. Now, you and I talked about the fact that, hey, five people ended up dead. But let's also think uh-huh. about the fact that there were officers that committed suicide. This situation was something that people, when they got home from dealing with that, there was just stuff that they couldn't deal with because of what they went through in that moment, right? And uh-huh. you have to look at those actions of Eugene Goodman and the fact that that's a moment in his life that he'll never forget. No, no, even though he saved lives, but that's something, mentally, you have to be a strong person. Mm-hmm. And like we just talked about, two officers, I believe, committed suicide, I believe. it was two. Yeah, two, two did, yeah. Sometimes people just, certain things they go through just can't handle it. Me, I can talk about on a personal level, a friend of mine as I used to work on a team with and uh, committed suicide because he did some things on the job where it was justifiable, but he just couldn't handle it. I wish he would have talked to somebody because we did not know. We didn't see the signs or anything and just got that phone call and he and he, he committed suicide, he killed himself. And it was just, wow, I just wish I, I wish he just would have reached out and talked to somebody. But you know what, though, Jules, that's a deeper conversation. And I'm glad you brought that point up because there's people that we talk about all the time on these show, on our show that there's people out here that are hurting. And you never know because the person could be around you. They can have the biggest smile on their face. But deep down inside, that person can be torn apart and you never know. And I think that there's so many stigmas that go on in this country regarding mental health. And I think sometimes a lot of people just don't feel comfortable with being vulnerable enough to tell people, hey, I'm hurting. This is going on with me. And so a lot of people don't reach out to the people around them that can maybe help them. They maybe can't give them a kind word when they need that. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, definitely. We have we have a saying in, in, on a job. It's okay to not be okay. It doesn't make you less of a person if you're a male, less macho, anything like that. No, we we damn it. In the end of the day, we're human beings. Yeah, we're human beings. We we get hurt emotionally, physically. I mean, and you do need an outlet. That's why sometimes you have people who who was molested. You have an out, outcry person, somebody they can talk to. It goes the same with some of you dealing with relationship wise, your professional life, family, and stuff like that. It goes the same. It's just we can't just internalize everything and no. and just try to deal with it on our own because you know if you're not that person that can mentally be strong enough to handle it, then it'll eat you up and ultimately cause your demise. And that's a good point. And I want any of our listeners, anybody that's listening to this episode, if you feel in any of those kind of ways, there's somebody in your life that cares, reach out to that person because they would rather you be here than to not be here. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you this, Jules, I feel like I'm probably one of the more stronger minded people that I know. But there were periods in 2020 where I struggled and I had to take a step back and I had to reach out to people to kind of get me back aligned. So I think that when you had that conversation, when you were talking about the guy on your team mm-hmm. that, that had that happen to him, that is so unfortunate to me because I wish that he would have saw that he had oh, um, an avenue as well. It's unfortunate, but uh, unfortunately, uh, my profession, law enforcement, is high percentage of suicide rates and yep. abortion rates and stuff. And yep. I mean, you see and deal with the worst of people on a daily basis, and a lot of outlets the officers do is not good as far as drinking and stuff, you know, and that doesn't help. Those are temporary bad days. Ultimately, you're still dealing with the problem, and you really need professional guidance and counseling to get through what you're going through. Like we always say, man, we got to get to the root of the issues. We can't snip around at the mm-hmm. low-hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, sir. That's the easy part. That really hit me that you said it. It made me open up about my own struggles of, you know, with some of the stuff that I was dealing with last year. And I just really want people that listen to this episode to know that that's why we do episodes like this, because we know that people are hurting and we want to help people. Again, if there's people out there that are feeling any kind of way right now, it's okay. <laughs> and like Jules said, it's okay. It's okay not to be okay. Like uh, <laughs> I'm about to shove that snow. I'm say, man, it's okay not to be okay. <laughs> Jules, you gonna be out there like I ain't no bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I still go back to this goddamn snow, man. I'm like, damn. <laughs> yeah, see, Jules is hurting too, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> This man emotional about this snow. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. All right. I, that's why I ain't going to bring it up. No, well, nah, I ain't going to promise that. Nah, I might bring no, it up. Don't, home. don't make no promises you can't keep. Yeah. <laughs> Jules, before we turn over to the Harlem Renaissance, man, did you see this shit that came out of Utah, man, with this Montessori school where they uh, they had some parents that wanted to opt their kids out of black history, history curriculum? Did you see that? Yeah, I read about that garbage, man. I, yeah, what the Prince, hell is that? What, what, Prince, what's... <laughs> this is 2021, man. What the hell? Uh, option to opt out of Black history? Okay, well, okay. All right, I didn't know you could... Prince, out of all the years we've been going to school, I didn't know there was a subject you can just say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to teach. Right. I wish. Where was I opt out when it was geometry? Shit, I'd have been like, man, get me up out of this class. Fuck y'all talking about right. I don't care about no isosceles. <laughs> <laughs> but but you yeah, right. But of course, but of course, there are some educators that says in state law allow, you know, parents to opt out any part of school where there's a recess or a gym or any type of subject. I did not know that. Think about this. That's really interesting to know that because 
I'm just going to say this. Where was you and I's opt out of American history that we were taught in school that left out the accomplishment of black people? <laughs> Come on now. Come you know on. what I'm saying? Because I'm about Come to go on. in. Because, dude, my question is, how many of these fucking punk-ass parents went to this school and said, hey, I want to opt little Johnny out of this black history curriculum? Because what I want people, when they're listening to this episode, to understand, mm-hmm. black history is American history, point blank. Right. You can't truly learn anything about American history without learning about black history. Well, we was over here. Right. We was here. <laughs> <laughs> What, 1619, they brought their asses yeah. over here. Yeah. 1619, in, 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 over there in Virginia. On that boat. Right. That's why I feel some kind of way taking cruises now. I'm like, man, I don't even feel comfortable being on this damn big-ass ship. Fuck this ship. Damn. <laughs> and, I, and I know somebody on the audience is probably going to laugh at that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, because I, I got quiet because I was like, damn, I was supposed to be going on the cruises. Yeah. <laughs> You, you did get quiet and then you started chuckling. And I was like, damn. I was like, that's people gonna probably be like, man, prayers, you're stupid. Think about it is though, is this school, they only had three students that were black okay. out of the whole school. Okay, so now we know. Okay. But it makes me wonder because this part of Utah, and for our listeners, you go, you know how Utah gets down anyway. It's a predominantly white city in Utah, only three students, and it's a Montessori school. So they have like different principles when it comes to education. I just wish that I kind of knew what went into those parents thinking about why they didn't want their kids to be exposed to this type of curriculum. That's just the thing that I want to know. I know that there was a lot of backlash, Jules. Yeah, they did get backlash. But for me, I'm just wondering, well, why? What is it that you don't want your kids to understand? You don't want your kids to understand that there were people that were oppressed? You want your children to to um, grow up and hold on to white supremacy? We have to face the facts with our young generation of the original sin of this country and teach kids the truth about racism in America mm-hmm. because that's the only way that we're going to help bridge the gap with this generation because as Jules and I talk about, racism is taught. When a child is born, they're innocent of all type of sin. They don't know anything. They're just a beautiful child. Mm -hmm. Then you get in this world and the evil of this world is what turns these kids, right? It corrupts them, yeah. It corrupts them. Mm -hmm. So when I hear stories like this with these type of parents, I'm like, so that makes me wonder, are these type of parents behind closed closed doors? What are they exposing these kids to? What are the conversations that they're having at home? That's the deeper issue, Jules. It's something to bring up. It's definitely something to bring up and talk about because and and the director, I don't know if he's going to do this, but for me, when he he like to go out and send a little thing or email about here's a form if if parents want to opt out, you need to send a little thing, a little form on why, because you brought up a good point on what is it about it. You can't just close your eyes and say it didn't happen, right? Or don't you don't want to look at it, or you don't want your kids to expose it because hell, you're talking about if you're talking about anything in history, I I know you're going to talk about the Holocaust. You're going to talk mm-hmm. about the Civil War, Revolutionary War. People killed and died and stuff. If you're going to talk about everything else and exclude Black history, then, dude, what, what, I mean, what do we do? So are we not caring or yeah. we just don't want to admit it? Right. And it could I, be a little bit of both. Right. Because as it you could be. Right. Because as you, you know, know full well, we grew up not understanding a lot about our own history and the value that we brought to the world. Mm-hmm. Because... Think about this, Jules, and and for our listeners. Many kids of color, like Jules and I, we were taught history 
through the lens of a, like a Eurocentric aspect. And a lot of times when you think about it that way, it minimized the contributions of Black people. Because most of the time, when I learned about history, and I'm using air quotes here, in school, when it came to Black people in those world history books, it mm -hmm. always talked about us with slavery. It yeah. always showed us being in chains, mm -hmm. right? And when you're a young kid, that damages your self-worth because then you don't see the excellence in yourself because you just now think of yourself as being oppressed and always being less than the next person. And I wonder, is that why history is taught in that way? Is that done intentionally to leave mm. out the aspects of history that show us overcoming, mm. that show us in positions of power? Because as a Black student, when you don't see yourself in the curriculum, that's damaging. Definitely right. You know, and so we, you, Jules and I always talk about knowing your worth because mm -hmm. when I'm out here doing the mentor work with these kids that have gotten in trouble with the law and things of that nature, you have to get to the root of the issue with that kid and understand, man, what makes this kid tick? Like, what is going on here? What, how did you get here? Because there's something in you that we can fucking connect and get to. But it's just a matter of understanding because there's so much damage that's been done. And when I say damage being done, it starts with situations like this. This stuff is intentional. It's the same thing that Jules and I went through when we were in school. It's the reason why we do these episodes on this podcast, because we tell you guys that a lot of this stuff we didn't learn about until we got out of school. Yes, sir. Right. And, <laughs> yes, and we, sir. Had, to, right. And we had to self-educate ourselves. Right. One of the things, too, I remember this, Jules, when we was at Rita. And I remember at one time in, in uh, what was that teacher's name? It don't matter. He, um, he was doing a lesson on slavery. And this man said, hey, oftentimes the enslaved people were treated well by the slave owners and they were considered part of family. So that was the type mm. of narrative that we were being taught in school. And I remember walking away from that thinking, but if you're slave, then how are you a part of the family? Then when I looked at it later in life, I'm like, well, no, these people are living out in the shack. They're eating like scraps and leftovers. They're being beat, you know, for, for any little thing that, that happens. How is that person a part of the family? Funny way of showing you're a part of the family. I don't want that type of love. No. I don't keep want that. that. You can keep that love. Jules, I also want to make sure that our audience, when they listen to me kind of go in on this, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. I do still love the fact that some of that is covered in, in history when it comes to slavery. Because that does, in, in one instance, it is a little demeaning to always just be that being put in your face. But on the other end, I think it also shows our strength and perseverance and ability to overcome. Right. And so I also think that that's important. But I think that Black history should be incorporated in curriculums every day of the year. It shouldn't just come down to a measly 28 days in, in the month of February because we are a part of American history. And I think that that's the point that we have to get to. And not look at this as, let's cram in 28 days of content. Let's talk about Martin Luther King. Let's talk about the same people that everybody always talks about. No, mm -hmm. there's more in conversations that can be had. And that's why on this show, Jules, and for our audience, that is why we talk to you about stories about people that you may not have heard about. Because these are stories that you're not going to squeeze into the month of February. Right. All that boils down to propaganda and manipulation. I remember, prayers. we in school, Black history, uh, how long it, it was throughout the school year, but when you cover it, it was always it was always negative. It was negative. Yep, yep. 
it was yep. always negative. And it was like, you sitting up there as a young kid, as a young, young kid coming up and just growing up. Okay, these are my people and my ancestors. And you read about it and you're like, oh man, this is messed up and stuff. You, it really doesn't hit home until you get kind of get up, get older and get out in the world and been, experience some things. Now you look at, like we had just said, oh, but there's people in color in positions. This wouldn't have happened without them. And, but those are not being exposed. Like we talked about Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. The ladies in Hidden Figures. These women right here help put people to the moon. The white people going up there to the moon. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about the uh, accomplishments that a lot of Black people were a part of. Yeah. And it's all history. So it shouldn't be singled out as, you know, Black history or white history or whatever history it is. It's just, hey, it's just history in, in general. That's right. That is right. But that's also, Jules, why I'm just incredibly proud of the work that we do on this show. Mm-hmm. He's just telling these stories, you know, and also showing how these people of color have made an impact on the world. And we're going to continue to keep doing this. Oh, yeah. Because there are so many different examples of Black excellence, and we want to continue to keep illustrating those. Because, hey, if the school isn't going to do its part, like that organization that reached out to us, Jules, and said that they were going to be sharing this with their students on these different episodes that we're doing. Well, every time when those kids press play, they're going to listen to how beautiful and great that they are and what they come from. Yes, sir. Come from kings and queens, like we said. Come from royalty. And Jules, I just hope that anyone listening to this podcast that is in a position that they can change some of this stuff. If you can use your influence, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's at your school, whether it's in your workplace, Anything you could do to help change these narratives and end the gaps in knowledge about Black history and ensure that not just Black students, but every student gets a chance to learn about this culture. Man, I do think that that would be phenomenal. And that would definitely go a long way. Oh, it definitely. You can understand. You see what people go through. You can put yourself in that situation like, oh, wow, this is messed up. Man, it's messed up. It's your community and, and, and stuff like that. It's just... But if you're never exposed to it, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't care. You wouldn't show no empathy or sympathy. You wouldn't care. It's just, oh, well, yeah, oh, well. One thing that I wanted to just pick pick up on, I had a conversation with, with, a, with a guy yesterday. Real, I'm real good friends with him, man. He's, he's a white guy. And he basically, you know, we, were, we, we talked about all kinds of stuff. But towards the end of the conversation, he brought up something that it kind of stood out to me. And it also made me feel very proud of what we're doing here, Jules. And I, I'm going to just keep saying that for our audience because – This show is something that I'm very proud of. But he said to me last year when he got Juneteenth off for his tech company that he works at, he didn't understand why. Because he had never heard of Juneteenth and the significance of that day in history, right? And I said, Mm -hmm. well, that's interesting because there's so many days in American history that I know because they were force-fed to me. And that's no fault of his own that he didn't know that. But I took away from that conversation that is an opportunity for Jules and I on these shows to continue to keep trying to reach people like him that hadn't heard about these things that are sitting here like, well, why is this something that I'm just now hearing about? Right. And that's why I want to continue to keep doing that on this show, man, because we want to educate people and we want to also just make sure that we can start the conversation, a dialogue. That's the bottom line of what I'm hoping here, because when I hear stories like this, where parents are opting their children out of this type of content, I want to know why. Why don't you want your child to understand history? What are you trying to shield your child from? That's a fair question. Yeah, it's just, it's problematic. 
And I just wonder why, because my mom didn't go up to the school and say, hey, I don't want my son learning about Thomas Jefferson, but I had to learn about him. She didn't say, hey, I don't want my son learning about Christopher Columbus, but I had to. So we need to make sure that our children are well-versed, right? And they should know all aspects of things. There shouldn't be 35, 40-year-old people that are in this world and they're like, oh, I don't know. I didn't know the significance of this date. I didn't even understand. I thought all slaves were free at this time in life. Well, that's a big problem. Well, And Jules, I'm going to say this. There were some black people four or five years ago that didn't even know the significance of Juneteenth. Okay. And that's also a problem because mm-hmm. you have to know your worth. You have to know your history. You got to know who you are. And if you don't, then you need to be seeking out knowledge and understanding that. Because when you do know where you come from and you know who you are, then you carry yourself a little bit differently in this world. I think you move differently. Oh, yeah. You definitely move with some swag now. Because, like I, like we said earlier, all this is to keep you down, keep you uneducated, keep you dumb, keep you keep you keep you at a place they don't want you to succeed and want you to to grow. You know, you feed you these these things. Hey, this is your history here, and this is what you should remain. This should always remain your history. But it goes to show you. Wait a minute. Okay, that may be our history here, but we have overcame and we have done great things. But they're not really highlighting it, highlighting those things. And what right. you had just said. So the Juneteenth, that's something big. We'll we'll get into that. Oh, yeah. But in other things. But hey man, always, always research, always think outside the box. Know your worth is what Press was saying. And that's big. Know your worth. A lot of things people are gonna hear from you because they don't want they don't want you to know the truth. They don't want you to know the truth. So always seek, always seek knowledge. And that's one of the things that you brought up on a previous episode, Jules, where you talked about how back in those earlier times, how if a black person was educating themselves, if they knew how to read or write, what was the th- what did the slave master do if they saw you reading or if they saw you writing? But okay. that's a, but yeah, but that was a reason. Why is that reason? A reason. I want our, mm-hmm. I want our audience to realize that because when you have knowledge, knowledge is power. They don't want you to have that, but guess what? That power is in you. Go take that power and seize the fucking day. Oh, yeah. Only power they can take from you is when you give. And you know what? My grandmother told me this mm. a long time ago. Education is the only thing that they can't take from you. And that is why, for me, I strive to learn as much as I can. And that's why I love on these shows that we're teaching people. There's people that maybe don't know some of this stuff, right? And for right. people that do know it, hey, it's reinforcing your values. Dude, I, ra- I raised my hand. I, there's plenty of times I'm the pause. Why? I did not know that. I'm, hey, I'm educating myself on this thing. <laughs> this subject is—it just hit home with me, just because, you know, you, you when you look at stuff like this, it just makes you wonder, like, man, this is how we got to this point because we have things that are being said to people behind closed doors, and I'll and I'll be the first to admit, when I was coming up, you know, I heard a lot of things negative about other races, but guess what? When I got out in the world, mm-hmm. I formed my own fucking opinion, right? Right. And I learned that, hey, there's a whole new world out there that I didn't know about because in my household, you know, people may say this thing or that thing. And sometimes those things kind of like they kind of hit you and you start you hold on to some of that stuff. But then when you get out here, when you get exposure and that's what I think the true beauty of this world is, is me going to a, a high school where it was mixed. Right. We had white students, Hispanic yes. students, everything. Yes. That's when right. we started to learn. And then going to right. it was diverse. And then going to college, mm-hmm. it was even more diverse because now I'm I'm, I'm right. around kids from all over the country and all the different parts of the world, right? So it's just like 
that exposure, I think, knocks down a lot of these barriers or these walls that, that we see today. Right. I'm like you. When we went through reading and stuff, I'm in the hood. So yeah. in the reading, you get diverse with different people and background stuff. And you're like, wow. And you come friends with a lot of them. Yeah. Even still to And you day. talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And great friendship. And you know what the killer part about it is? They're all the same. And we're yeah. all the same. Yeah. <laughs> we're all yeah. the same. We got the same problems. We laugh the same. We hang out. We have fun. We talk. And this, dude, we are all, we are people. And we're all the same. At the end of the day. That's mm-hmm. what it comes down to. And so that's what mm. you you and I always talk about. Just even if we don't agree, because I'm not going to agree with everybody. But guess what? At the end of the day, man, it should be about respect <laughs> and even trying right. to understand somebody else's position. Because even if somebody came at me, like my partner yesterday, and he wasn't really understanding the whole Juneteenth thing. I didn't get off that phone call with him blowing him up. Man, I just sat there and I tried to talk to him, explain to him why I see why that's significant. And why I think that it was an opportunity for him to explore more and learn more about it. And right. he walked off that conversation right. thinking, well, damn, that's cool, man, because I hear how he comes on his show. But he can at least take a step back with me as his friend and say, look, this is kind of where you might be wrong on this. But look into it yourself. And then let's have another conversation. And that's how mm-hmm. we left it. Ooh, excellent. Excellent. He didn't know. And you was like, wait a minute. You knew more about it. So you was able to inform and educate him. Right. Hell, not only he didn't know, the, the people back there didn't know for two years. And then, but we'll get into it now. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's coming. a story. It's, it's a story. Wow. Audience, you be on the lookout. It's coming. We got so right. much stuff brewing for y'all this season. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, man, let's get into this episode, man. Let's talk about this Harlem Renaissance. So, listeners. Oh, yeah. We're going to talk to y'all about these 20s. So, before... I'm going to let Jules kind of get in here and kick it off. I wanted to just give you guys just a quick summary of just kind of like what Harlem was kind of pre this Renaissance period. So this was like a northern Manhattan neighborhood, and it was basically being left or it was meant for upper class white people. And this was probably in the late, I would say, 1800s, Jules. But because the area was overdeveloped, they had a lot of empty buildings And so you had a lot of landlords that were left trying to figure out how they were going to fill these buildings. Mm -hmm. So in the early 1900s, we have a few middle-class Black families that started to move to Harlem. And then other Black families would soon follow. One of the key things that happened that probably led to a lot of these people moving into Harlem was in 1906, there was construction of the Pennsylvania Station. What this did was over a four-year period, the construction of this station displaced a large amount of Black families, right? Because they were living in that land that they wanted slated for that station. So these displaced families also moved to Harlem. So you can also imagine, listeners, what probably happened to this neighborhood because, as I mentioned, this was an upper white class neighborhood and you had all these Black people that started to move in. So the white residents, they pushed back on this. They didn't want it, right? But of course, it was nothing they could do about it. So mm-hmm. then what it ended up happening is they moved. <laughs> so now you couple what's been going on with Harlem, where now you have these middle class black American families that are now living in this neighborhood. Now, think about the great migration that Jules and I have talked about on previous episodes. Now, this was led by Du Bois, who was a very prominent figure during this time. But This is how my grandmother and my grandfather came up from the South. It was during this great migration. And this is where people 
were coming from the South. They were moving to cities like Chicago, L.A., Detroit, Philly, and obviously New York. By 1920, there were over 400,000 African-Americans from the South that moved up North. And Harlem actually ended up being one of the most popular destinations for these families. The Great Migration was really the thing that really helped this area of Harlem blow up. And what we saw come from this Renaissance period in Harlem is African-American artists, scholars, some of the greatest and brightest minds and talents all being in this one area. And it was just like everything that you could think about, it was ours. And so on this episode today, we're going to pull back the curtain on that Harlem Renaissance and talk to you guys about why this is an important part of Black history. Jules, go ahead and hit them. This Harlem here was not really just a colony or a community. It was a settlement. You know, Black city that located in the heart of white Manhattan contained more Black people than ever. That's why it's called, that's why you get the name Black Mecca. And you know what? I'm glad we did that great migration because all our families came from the South. Mine's from Mississippi. See? <laughs> Man. So if they didn't make that great migration, I wouldn't, I don't know where I'd be at. I'd probably be somewhere in Louisiana. Who knows? You'd probably be down South somewhere, <laughs> but you wouldn't be shuffling any snow. You know what? You're right. <laughs> I would say this, and that's interesting because so you say yours came from Mississippi. So did they mostly just mm-hmm. settle here in Chicago or did they go other places too? Yep, Chicago. Yeah. Pretty much Chicago. A lot, a lot of my family from uh, Chicago. There's a couple in St. Louis, but, but, but predominantly Chicago. Yeah, for us, it was Chicago and St. Louis as well. Yep. But the thing uh, is, for the yeah. audience, when, when we talk about this Harlem Renaissance, though, the development of this neighborhood like Jules mentioned, was the Black Mecca. And it it lasted roughly from about 1910 to about the mid-1930s. But it was the golden age of African-American culture. So a lot of times what we say on this show is like, listen, we want to paint the picture of some of the struggles and adversity that we had as a people, but we also like to highlight stories like this, where we basically were responsible for a whole movement, (laughs) in in a sense, because Mm -hmm. this was our culture, But we had literature pieces, music, art, poetry, painting, sculpture. Think about the jazz and the opera and the dance and all of the things that encompassed this area of the country. Like, that was all us. And when you think about the creative arts, that was the big thing that was thriving in Harlem during this time. And so to give our audience a little bit more information on just everything that kind of happened with the creation of this, during the earlier days of the Harlem Renaissance, Basically, there was an entrepreneur that came there and he started acquiring up leases on white-owned properties. So he had his own little realty company. And then what he did in turn did was he rented these properties out at 10% above the deflated market value to the Mm middle-class Black people in New York. So now, Mm -hmm. this was the first time that Black people in large quantities had access to attractive housing. And you got to think about it. This was in one of New York's better neighborhoods. Oh, right. Because like you said, Press, they overdeveloped. Yep. (laughs) They overdeveloped. And the problem was, of course, you was going through that Civil War. I'm I'm sorry, not Civil War, the uh, uh, World War I. World War I, yep. So a lot of people, there was, men was out there fighting wars. That's The Great Migration started because these factories, people needed help uh, uh, working. They need Mm -hmm. workers. Mm Mm-hmm. Black people got along, uh, got, saw that and it was like, hey, man, hey, we're going to take a trip up, you know what I'm saying, to the north, to the north side and, and get this work, get this paper because, hell, 
I don't be stuck in Jim Crow South. Right. Where you go around and dealing with, you know, segregation and getting lynched and stuff. No, we're going to make a better life. Let's migrate. The great migrate. We're going to migrate over there to the, uh, to the North and get these jobs. And then with coming to New York and the Harlem and stuff, where you have these buildings, so developers have no nothing else but to, hey, sell these black people. Yeah, I mean, they, they had no choice because the thing about it is, is that this entrepreneur saw an opportunity. He built them out, mm-hmm. so got them out of mm-hmm. those situations. So now, like you said, they had all this property that they had no one that, to, yeah, to no. live there. So we came in, saved the day. <laughs> Man, definitely. Because like you like you brought uh, Philip Payton with his, with, his, uh, with the uh, African-American Realty Company. He, mm-hmm. bought, it, he brought property. Mm-hmm. Uh, C.J. Mm-hmm. Thomas brought property. Yep. The church, the churches brought property. And guess what? Like you talk about some of the white people, was there was some that stuck around, but they got evicted. Right. Dude, that was unheard of. It kind of goes in hand in what what uh, what O.W. Gurley was doing back in Black Wall Street when he buy up these acres of land and and brought people the entrepreneur and, and try to do their business. Same thing with this. Bought a, bought some sections, bought some buildings. Somebody else bought buildings, and they houses their own people. Mm-hmm. Wow! And the thing about it is, Harlem, to Jules' point, it became a destination for African Americans from all type of backgrounds. Because when it first started out, you had more the, the middle class, right? But mm-hmm. then, as you kind of like progressed with this Harlem Renaissance period, you had unskilled laborers to the educated middle class, right? But they all shared the same type of experience as Jules and I mentioned before. These are all people that wanted a better life for themselves, for their kids. And just because they left the South doesn't mean that they forgot who they are. They just wanted to have access to nice things. And I think that right. that's something that we all should live for. You they know, just want a better life. They just want yeah. a better life. Because you hear that even in this race now, Jules, where you'll have you know, people, black people, that they will look down on another black person because they don't live in the, the, the hood or the inner city. And they, was when they figure things out, they decide to move because they want to have something better for their family, but they're looked down at for that. And when I say you shouldn't look down at people for wanting better because that just basically shows other people, listen, you could get out of here too. But guess what? Just because you left don't mean you can't come back and impact. Don't mean you can't come back and do some of the things that Jules and I talk about when we talk about buying back the block. There's so much you can Uh do. And I just think it's important to look at a story like here with this Harlem Renaissance, where these people moved up to Harlem in this affluent neighborhood. But all they were trying to do was they wanted a better opportunity for themselves because during these times, they didn't have it. No, they sure didn't. (laughs) I mean, like we said, you either want to go down, you in the sharecropper, you over there slaving, picking cotton, getting lynched, Staying out in, in in shacks and hoods, and or you want to go up north, or you want uh go up south, and uh, I'm sorry, go north and work and treat like a human being and provide for your family a better life and living in clean water and bathroom and beds and stuff and food and also have a good time, nightlife too. Yeah, quality education for your kids. Right, education. Hey, give me that. Let me mm-hmm. try that. <laughs> Let me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those things when I when I look at that, I saw just another parallel to today's time, because I think that we all just have to look at things in the right lens. And when you look at Harlem during this period, that was the cultural center of black America back then. I mean, I could man, and dude, it was the Mecca. I mean, think about it was Mecca. all the stuff that was going on back then, man, during that time, all the talent <laughs> that that gravitated oh, to that dude. area. 
I mean, think about it like this. Langston Hughes, this dude, he was one of the biggest leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, mm-hmm. he didn't just make his mark, you know, with his artistic stuff, but he broke boundaries with his poetry. And, and I think you will remember when you were in grammar school. Remember when you had those uh, those poetry contests in school? And I used to okay. always do like the little Langston Hughes different uh, poems. And his poetry, though, it was really, really dope. And uh, he's somebody that believed in the worthiness of all black people. It didn't matter about your social status. He was just about the uplift of his people. And so for me, okay. he was one of the biggest people that was a part of that movement. Those literary pieces right there are crucial to the movement where such where magazines such as you get the film The Crisis that was published by the NAACP. It was founded in 1910, where for the first 24 years it was edited by W.D. Du Bois and it considered the world's oldest population. Then you have another magazine, The Opportunity, was published around that time, and it was edited, edited by Charles Johnson, aimed to give voice to the Black culture. Then also you got another piece, Brotherhood of a Sleeping Car Reporter, is the first African-American labor union to be affiliated with, with the Federation of Labor, founded by A. Philip Randolph. Now, A. Philip Randolph is important because in 1963, in August, he helped with the March on Washington. Mm-hmm. So not only he was doing this thing back then in the Renaissance uh, era, he didn't just just leave the, leave the hood and just leave everybody behind. He was in it. He was teaching and was doing this thing or trailblazing, and he taught others that came after him. And Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Organization there and helped develop and organize the March on Washington. Dude, I, I just thought, you know, just say that because that was just important when I read that. Yeah, and I, and I definitely love that parallel because that's just another example there of how you can basically make that impact mm-hmm. when you've basically moved on. And the thing about it is, as a Black American, you never really have moved on. Like Jules talks about, he grew up in the hood, right? His parents still live in the area where he grew mm-hmm. up. So that's still a part of him. So even if he doesn't live in that area directly, his folks still live there. People that he love and care about deeply live there. So you're never far away because that's in your heart. So I just think that there's always ways that you can give back and make impact. So that's just sure. something I want people to just kind of keep in mind. Uh, yes, Louis, Louis Armstrong. So think Uh-oh. about him. Yeah. Dude, you know what? Before you say anything, Press, I just want to say going through and looking at this, like, man, wouldn't it have been dope just to be back in that time, man? I, I so so I'm gonna say one thing. I think I wouldn't have survived very long during those oh, times, okay. <laughs> but I bet it would have been fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Just yeah. the, the the talent you had, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at the times, right, you, man, those, they dressed well and they was out there partying and having a good time. You know, man, I'm all about a good time, man. I'm like, man, there people out here, they was living it up, mm-hmm. you know, even in the midst of all the adversity that they had in life, you know, they still would have times to cut up. They go to the little cotton club, you know, they had the good jazz music, like you said, with Louis Armstrong, man, that dude was a beast. <laughs> man. Go, go ahead, Prince, because, man, I'm over here smiling, boy. Just think about just sitting in that audience, just just listen to, to, to Louis and do. And I love all them. And I love jazz music. I have some of my old, my grandfather, he had some records. And he has some old Louis Armstrong records. So I have those because I've been trying to get my, my vinyl collection up. But okay. jazz music, bro, 
Mm-hmm. Damn, man. Sometimes I could just sit here in this little office, man. Like when I'm just trying to have like kind of get my mind right, I'll put on some of that stuff and it just sets the fucking vibe right. Just really, really good. But okay. But I would say, man, Louis Armstrong, when you think of the Harlem Renaissance, he was another notable person from that time. And he was the reason why people appreciate jazz the way that they do. And not only just between people of the black race, but people outside of our culture. He made this music mainstream. And I think that that's really important because music is something that I've actually been able to use in my life to build friendships with people. There's people that that I have known that we vibed off of like talking about different artists that we like, right? And having that same type of commonality, right? Uh So you got to think about somebody like Louis Armstrong, his music transcended race, right? So then he's bringing people together because during this Harlem Renaissance time, even though this area was predicated with mostly black people in Harlem, well, there were still white people that were getting attracted to not only the music, but the, the arts that were happening within mm-hmm. Harlem, and they were getting attracted to it. So then they started coming around, right? And they started hanging out. Right, right. And then they started to obviously become part of the culture as well. And I thought that was really important. So when I think of another notable person, Louis Armstrong was somebody that was really good because that music was a big part of what took place in Harlem during those times. Because they used to have those uh, those speakeasies, right? And I was like, man, I would have loved to have been in one of them little places. That, that, that seemed like that would have been so cool yeah, to have right? a little music going, you getting your little legal drinking going on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because, that's, yeah, it wasn't legal back then, folks. No. <laughs> Uh-uh. <laughs> but man, when you talk about 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 Louis, man, and then you, you know you got cats like Duke Ellington. Yep. yep. Man, they say Ellington wrote almost a thousand compositions making jazz. Josephine Baker. Oof. Talk to him. Wow. Cap Calloway. Cap Calloway. Come on, and them suit suits. Yeah, oh, man, that's what I'm saying. Like, man, them dudes they used to be fly, bro, with the little hats. Man, you couldn't tell them nothing. Oh. Couldn't tell Man. Nothing. No, so those cats right there are just 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 monsters. Monsters in that game. You know, other you know, politically is Marcus Marcus Garvey. Yes, sir. And and one thing that I was gonna say about Marcus Garvey for any of our listeners that may not understand his story, but he was born in Jamaica and he actually moved to Harlem in the mid-teens as well. And mm-hmm. he published mm-hmm. a paper called The Negro World. Okay. That was really important because he was getting the message out there about (laughs) basically empowering his people. So the thing about it was, is that he and W.E.B. Du Bois, they were actually at odds with each other because W.E.B. Du Bois, as I mentioned earlier, was kind of that trailblazer, that great migration. But W.E.B. Du Bois thought that Marcus Garvey was a dangerous enemy of our race. Mm. And that was some of those early days of division. And that's something that me and Jules were talking about. Whereas as a race, just because somebody has a different approach than what you have, you shouldn't just label somebody to be radical or a danger. Maybe try to bridge the gap, try to find common ground. Mm-hmm. Because we saw that with Malcolm X and Martin Luther oh, King during the civil exactly. rights movement, where they were very polarizing, where Martin Luther King was the nonviolent, where Malcolm X was by any means necessary, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But as you saw later in life, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King started to kind of come together a little bit more. And it was unfortunate that Malcolm X was killed because I could have only imagined 
the work that they could have done by working together as opposed to not working with each other. Ooh, dude. They, they, well, we, last week we talked about that COINTEL Pro. That was one of them things they did not want. They did not want that. FBI, Hoover, and uh, powers may be, did not want that because those two people right there are powerful. They're powerful individually yep. because you get one half the nonviolent and, 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 and people that was taken to Martin's uh, philosophy and his, and his speech and stuff. And then you also have Malcolm X was more of a more of aggressive approach and people are drawing that too. Mm-hmm. But you can look at it and, and, and compromise the both and put them together. You talking about a powerful statement where you can be loving and, and, and empathetic and sympathetic, but also you don't take no stuff either. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Facts. You can mix the two. Yes, sir. And still be a, 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 a man, a powerful, a, a, it'll be a powerful speech, a, a powerful movement. Because now you get, now you, you incorporate everything, everything. Because let's be honest, there are people out here that want to do some harm and, and, and want to tell you and force feed what, no, this is what it is. But you, you're not, you're no fool. And yeah. that's when you will have to be and turn up and switch tactics and we'll have to come a, a little aggressive. Oh man, they both was cut down way too soon. Way, way gone way too soon. But that, right. but that's just the thing, the, the division. And I think mm-hmm. that that's been something that has plagued this race because, mm-hmm. and we still struggle today with learning how to work together. And that's something that I just hope that over time, man, it's something that improves because, man, if we all learned how to work together, could you imagine where we could go? And in present, here's the killer part. We all trying to get to the same place. That's right. You know what? We all want better. We're yeah. all trying to get to the same place. Yep, yep. So we just compromise, come together, put our heads together, take the positive, and get rid of the trash. Simple, right? And I know it's not easy, but it's simple. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, man. But Marcus Garvey, though, man, he was also a target of J. Edgar Hoover. You brought him up on the last episode. Mm-hmm. I feel like J. Edgar Hoover, he was a Fred Airy black man back then. <laughs> 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 he had that list, boy. He was he was scratching them off now. He was a creep, though, man. Listening to all these damn dudes' conversations all the time. Like, yeah, man, right? bro, come on, man. What you doing? Illegal wiretapping and bugging and stuff. It's like, dude, man, come on, messing up homes. Happy yeah. homes. Man, quit playing. Trying to get yeah. people caught up, man. You doing too much, Jack Hoover. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but what you say it, friends, though? What's that? doing too much. <laughs> no, what you... My parallel with that was just the fact that anybody that he saw was a threat, he mm-hmm. sought to, like I mentioned in the last episode, what happens is the playbook. Discredit, neutralize. Right. And right. Hoover was the, the king of that, right? And so Marcus yeah. Garvey was on his radar, just like Malcolm mm-hmm. X, like Martin Luther King, right? Mm-hmm. And so anybody that was out there trying to uplift and, and, and push the, the message out to the people to educate them and get them to understand their worth and their value, well, they were a threat. <laughs> it was a threat, and they, and they had to be dealt with. Is what we was talking about all this time, beginning of this this episode. How they don't want you to know the truth. Mm-hmm. That you know, what I'm saying? let's say if you are educated and try to uh, empower other people, you are a considered a threat. You public enemy number one. They do not want that. They don't want you to know the truth. They don't want you to get uh uh, uh, uh knowledge because if you know knowledge, then you can do better. Mm-hmm. And you can come out from any situation, any circumstance you 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 you're in right now. Man, it's all chess. It's all insidious, like like what we say, man. And 
it's important that we have people like this that they know things, they're educated, and also to feed and 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 experience and expose other people to it, so they'll know and have better too. Yep, and that's why I thought that this era was so important because mm-hmm. the people behind the scenes, like your Langston Hughes and your WDB Du Bois, that were a big part of why this area thrived, they were just only just small parts of why this was successful. I thought what really made it successful were the people that migrated there, that came there looking for better opportunities, that put in the work, that built up that area, right? Because as a mm-hmm. collective, they were stronger together, working together, right. and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and building together. And I thought that that was important. When I was doing some research on this, Paul Robeson, who's an, also another notable Black right. actor. Yeah, he got and schooled over here. What's that? I said, it's a school in his name over here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. One of the things about him that I really liked is the fact that many times back in the day when Black actors appeared on TV, they played characters that made them look like fucking fools and idiots, right? right. And he played more serious roles that were non-stereotypical. That's why I gave kudos to Cicely and the fact that yes, Mm-hmm. She didn't play roles that demeaned her as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And Paul Robeson was the same way. So during this Harlem Renaissance, he was also important with changing the narrative of the type of roles that basically black people would be in. So the thing about R- Robeson, he was an actor, singer, writer, but he was also an activist. So even using his platform for better, because even though his audiences loved his work when he did things, you know, whether it was acting or singing or whatever the case may be. <laughs> but one of the things he did is he made people uncomfortable because he traveled all over the world through his various, uh, you know, career, but he spoke about, spoke out about racism. And I thought he was a prominent person in this time, because not only as Jules mentioned, a lot of these individuals that were part of this Harlem Renaissance, how they would go on later to not only impact maybe what happened with the civil rights movement, but a lot of this period was a period of black people empowering themselves. Mm-hmm. Black people having a sense of pride in who they were as a race. Getting out of that mentality of being in the South where you were beaten down while you had to deal with the Jim Crow South, right? So this was a time where basically we started to understand our worth that we talk about so many different times. So I thought Paul Robeson was another person that I thought was really instrumental during this time period. Oh, man. I mean, the, it's endless. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the names are just endless. Uh, and let's not let's not forget about uh the uh father of Harlem Renaissance, Adam Locke. Yes, this dude here was known as the as as the father of him uh, of Renaissance, where you know he did publications of the New Negro anthology and of poetry, essays, plays, music, everything. This mecca right here that we have that we're talking about right now, it's just you have everything is all black. And they all uplifting. They all have businesses and creators and writers and actors and activists. It's just everything's a big melting pot sure. of what black people can do. And they they exploded on this 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 era and this scene right here. And, and to your point, when it came to Locke, I was really impressed with him. I mean, he graduated from from Harvard. The value that he brought from all his various teachings and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. I mean, his philosophy was grounded on the concept of race building. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier in the episode, just raising awareness of equality, right? Mm -hmm. And 
for Blacks to just no longer allow themselves to adjust or simply comply with unreasonable things that basically the Jim Crow South or other aspects of the white law govern. And political awareness and self-confidence was like the biggest keys for, for Locke. And I thought him being the dean of this Harlem Renaissance, that basically encapsulated everything that that period was for right. us mm-hmm. as a people. So it's just that pride, man. And then, and the thing about it is, I often talk about this, if we have to get that back. You know, there's there's a lot of us that are walking around right now with no purpose. And we have to understand that purpose. Understand your why. Like we talked about on the episode with Julius Dorsey. We have to start looking at ourselves in the mirror and start facing things in adversity head on. Remember that story about how he talked about how daunting his quota was that he would right. wake up and he would write that on his mirror. He faced it. He didn't run from it. He didn't. We can't run from our problems. Got to face them head on. Because let's, let's be honest, wherever you go, it's going to be there. Oh, it's following you, brother. <laughs> it's, it's following, following you. you. It's going to be there. You took this right there. So yeah. we got to face them. Got to face them. The biggest silver lining to me without this whole Harlem Renaissance is I just think it gave people and artists pride and control over how our Black experience was represented in American culture. And so, you know, earlier in the episode, I talked about the fact that Black history is American history, right? Mm -hmm. You made a great parallel earlier in the episode, how you talked about the work of some of the leading people in the Harlem Renaissance, how it set the stage for the civil rights movement. And I thought Uh that was something that was important for people to kind of think about, because that gave our race the confidence and the ability to realize that, hey, there's even more opportunity that we can have as a people. And we have to fight for what we want. And I thought that that was really important. The other thing about this neighborhood that really made me proud when I read about it was, this was another Black Wall Street in a sense, because you had all these African-American-owned publishing houses and these newspapers, music companies, the clubs, the cabarets, you know, whatever. You You name it. (laughs) You name it. We had it. Casinos. Exactly, right? But the fashion, like what Jules was talking about, the music, it it was like, it was a culture that that they created there, you know? And when you look back on that period, it was just like, man, those people were cool. When you looked at those pictures and you saw the videos of them, like, you know, out there dancing and doing their thing, like, and the way that they just kind of just moved, it was just, it was a different vibe and you love to see that you love to see that mm-hmm. so i thought that this period was very successful and the black experience was one that a lot of people weren't really familiar with and that was when we came into our own i think you know within the actual american culture and uh it kind of changed i think people's perception jules because a lot of times when people thought about black people they thought about slavery they thought about in the South how we were uneducated peasants uh-huh. that were working on fields, right? But when you look at that Harlem period, man, Harlem was just sophisticated, bro. And the people, oh. they were beautiful. It was black excellence in its purest mode. You talking about night and day. <laughs> <laughs> night and day. Well, the, the, Press, man, brother, love this episode here because that's what we've been talking, been preaching about. Mm-hmm. What you don't know, this is what you hear right here. This is where you at. You're in the South. And this is how you was treated. Knowing damn well, they treat you worse than a damn than an animal. Yeah, exactly. 
Don't and even look, get what, me, don't even get me started on that. Right. I, I, <laughs> so in the north, you got people in Harlem working, businessmen, women, playwriters, everything we just talked about, a better life. What they do is knowledge. This was God's gift here. Their talents. And they were just given opportunity. That's all we, that's all the people have been asking for is opportunity and fairness and equality. But when they got that opportunity, they seized that opportunity and they and, showed yep. their talents. And they right? showed and they showed up and showed out. Yep. And the only thing that caused this Harlem Renaissance to come to an end wasn't because of us per se. Everyone knows history knows that the stock market crash in 29 caused mm-hmm. the depression. Yep. Great. Depression. So that hurt a lot of those African-American owned businesses. And that was the thing that caused a lot of these people to have to move because they had to move out of the area because it was less thriving. And when a lot of these people moved on, they had to seek work elsewhere because if there was no work there in that area, they had to go to where the work was. Mm -hmm. That part also hurt the movement. Also, for our audience, there was a Harlem race riot that happened in 1935. And the story with this situation was there was a young shoplifter that was arrested. But it resulted in three people being killed and hundreds being injured. And there was millions of dollars in property damage that took place over the course of this riot. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And so right there, that really kind of put the nail in the coffin. the nail in the coffin. Yeah. But what's the common denominator, Jules? We talked about with Black Wall Street. It was a situation where there was a, you know, kind of a race-related riot. Kind of came to the culmination of the destruction of what was built in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of see where when there's things where we're thriving, there's people that are sitting on the sidelines like, man, I don't like that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like in Belly, remember when old boy was eating a banana? He's like, I'm going to drop a dime on them. (laughs) That's how he was looking at him. (laughs) But I just want the audience, though, just to think about, even though the movement did only last a couple of uh, decades, Right. You have to look at the long-term impact that the Harlem Renaissance had on this culture and also on America. It's always going to leave that footprint because think about all the work of African-Americans, whether it's art and all the different things that inspired future generations of people, not just African-American artists, but just other artists yeah. and intellectuals. In general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in general. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was important, Jules. Oh, yes, yeah, sir. Definitely leave a blueprint. Just like with Black Wall Street, mm-hmm. definitely love, definitely love a blueprint. Something we can look back and study and and, and eat and digest and and get the nutrients out of it for for today's time. Mm-hmm. Like I talk about with A. Philip Randolph, he didn't just 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 leave what he had accomplished there at Harlem Renaissance. No, he helped out he helped out Martin King and them. Mm-hmm. And that's how other people need to need to do. You you have something. You have knowledge. Knowledge is power. And then you know you see somebody trying. Oh yeah, dude, just lift them up, give them an opportunity, give them a hand. Man, like like we always say, man, if you made it, man, look back and see if there's somebody else you can bring with you, man. Man. It's not just all about what you got. Right. Because I'll tell you one thing, man. I sleep better at night knowing that we're doing shows like this and that you and I are doing things behind the scenes that are making lives for other people better, just like the lives that you and I have been blessed to have. I sleep a lot better, man, knowing that, like, man, we can play a small part in other people winning out here. It's a good feeling. Um, I was listening to uh, Denzel Washington. He gave a speech, and he said he's selfish of that feeling because how, <laughs> how, how good it make him feel helping people. 
And that's how I, I can understand how you feel. Like when when people write in with the questions and people are listening to what we're saying and educating people and stuff. And that's a good that's a good feeling to have. Yeah, man. Getting those emails from listeners and getting emails right. from, from nonprofit organizations that are right. telling us how they're sharing this content with kids in their programs. That type of stuff right there is just showing the impact of what we're doing. And that's why we're going to keep doing it. Because mm-hmm. that stuff matters. It matters, man. It matters. And man, this right here, this Harlem Renaissance, man, good period. Just the talent, man. I'm just going back and just smiling about the talent mm-hmm. that we had and what they was able to do in businesses and, and just the, the beautiful music and plays and artistry and stuff, man. And uh, I would just say uh, today, Harlem is one of the, the richest, most culturally vibrant neighborhoods in New York. Mm. And you have to think about some of the influences. So jazz, rap, hip hop, they all can trace their roots back right. to this historic neighborhood. And that's so important. So Harlem, not only just a world famous landmark for those contributors of culture, but even in today's time, it's a neighborhood on the rise. So now you have families, business, everybody that is coming back to Harlem. And so now we're seeing <laughs> the second life of Harlem. And so it's really, really cool to see when you go to Harlem, you just feel a vibe there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, it's, it's like no other. Mm. And those are the kind of areas that I flock to. Like, I'm not really that all that cool about being in Manhattan like that, but Harlem, Brooklyn, well, Brooklyn before they built the Barclays, because now I feel like Brooklyn's too gentrified. But, you know, I just love areas that have culture. When before these people stripped the culture out of a neighborhood, man, it's just like that shit. You you just can't you can't replace that feeling when you walk somewhere and you feel that history. I gotta get there, man. I haven't got there yet, man. I gotta get there. Well, I, w- I would encourage you to get out there and you you you'll love it, man. I mean, because think about it, how you love the music and, and the arts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yes, man, sir. You would you would love it. Okay. <laughs> you will love it. Well, man, Jules, this has been another another dope episode, my brother. Yes, sir. I appreciate you, my man, and we are out. Jules, going to hit him with that curtain call, bruh. All right. This curtain call goes out to the conscious kid. There are an education, research, and policy organization that is dedicated to equity and promoting healthy racial identity development in youth. They support organization, family, and educators in taking action to disrupt racism in young children. And since everything starts at home, we need to talk about race and racism in order to actually shift racial attitudes and behavior. This right here is very important. Present I am pulling back the curtain podcast family. I appreciate and thank you for all your hard work. Jules, thanks for that curtain call. As always, you can find this podcast on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Deezer, or wherever you get your podcast. We appreciate your continued support of this podcast. Without you, we wouldn't be. We're the Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast. Thanks for listening. Peace.